Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would just bless uh, our opportunity to be in the Word. Uh, Lord, I know my desire is to simply be your mouthpiece, and so God, I pray that you would speak through me. Uh, We don't need just another message. We don't need just words. God, we need to know that we have heard from you tonight. And God, I pray that's exactly what you do in this place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, right about this time, or actually a few hours earlier than this, I received a text message from a friend of mine that works with college students, and he asked a question and said, Nathan, can you give me an answer? I've got some college students asking. He said, why do you, give me an answer. Why do you think it's important to study the Old Testament? I sent him an answer and and sent him some stuff, but I began to think about that as I was preparing for this message, is that unfortunately, I I think it's probable that maybe even some of you in this room have never even read this passage of Scripture or this book at all. The Old Testament is not something a lot of people visit, unfortunately. We get so caught up with the idea of going to the New Testament, that the New Testament's the only thing that matters because it's got Jesus, and we forget all the things that are in the Old Testament, But that being said, it's probable that some of you don't know what's going on in this passage of Scripture. And so I want to give you just a little bit of history so that you can make application. Because as I tell people, guys, you'll never understand what the Bible's saying to you until you know what it was saying to them. So that you can make proper application. So here's what's happening. Uh, This is in a time period in Israel that's called the divided kingdom, okay? What had happened is, you know, you've got the 12 tribes that they kind of were together and they desired, they were first led by God and then they had, you know, they had Moses as the mouthpiece and then it was Joshua and then guys, it didn't take very long that they kind of began, there was some unrest and then God was using the judges and they began to just decide they really wanted a king, they really wanted a king. They got the king that they were looking for, it was King Saul, it didn't go so good and finally they got King David and for the first time in the history of these 12 tribes after Moses, all of them came together and they were a kingdom. They actually were a nation called the nation of Israel underneath the leadership of King David. King David had a son named Solomon. King David desired to build the temple, but he wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a battling king. The Bible said, God said, you have too much blood on your hands, so you're not going to build my king, you're not going to build my temple. He said, but I am going to allow your son, Solomon, to build the temple. And so Solomon does something that was unheard of in that day. They, instead of meeting the tabernacle, which was a tent, that temporary place that God would, uh, that God would come and peer and talk to his people, they built this massive temple, this beautiful temple that Solomon built it. And under Solomon's reign, they remained together. But you know the story, Solomon would fall away from God and God keeping his promise to David that he would always have somebody on the throne, of course, kept Solomon there. But then after Solomon, there was a divided kingdom. Solomon's son, immediately after he took power, um, was, was approached by the, what's called the northern tribes. He was approached by the northern tribes and they said, listen, there's, you guys, you're taxing us too much. This is Nathan Rogers' paraphrase, but you're taxing us too much. And because you're taxing us, lighten the burden and we'll happily serve you. He went to get some advice. He listened to the elders that were with his dad and they gave him some advice. And then he listened to the guys that were his own age and he decided to go with the guys that were his own age and they gave him terrible advice. He followed their advice and immediately the kingdom was split. And the kingdom would never again be together. 
This is during that time that there's a king in Israel, which is the northern ten tribes, and there is a king in Judah, which is the southern two tribes. This is when this is happening. There's a king in Israel, and he's typically in Samaria, and then there's a king in Judah, and he is in Jerusalem. This king, King Hezekiah, was over Judah. Judah has a much better history than Israel. Israel has a series of evil kings, and they're constantly evil and gets evil, more even, even eviler. Is, is that a word? Eviler. And then all of a sudden they have, you guys know King Ahab, okay, the, the terrible king, whose wife's name was Jezebel, okay. If you didn't know the time, it's Jezebel, right? Which Jezebel, you never notice nobody names their daughter Jezebel, okay? That would be why, okay? Because she was just this wicked, wicked woman, all right? It is during this time period, the time period of the divided kingdoms, that if you're reading after Isaiah, Jeremiah, if you're reading some things about Elisha and Elijah, this is the time period and much, many of the minor prophets as well begin to prophesy of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, that they were going to be destroyed or actually taking, taken captive. And then the nation itself would be destroyed and never begin, again be a nation until, does anybody know when Israel became a nation again? In 1948. Because they were centuries of not being a nation because of a, because of a very simple thing, disobedience. Disobedience and idolatry, following after other gods. And so Hezekiah, being king of Judah, the southern two tribes, was burdened for the things of God. And the first thing that he noticed was an indication that things had gone really bad in Judah. Listen to me carefully. Was the condition of the temple. His first indication that things have gone bad was the fact of the condition of the temple of God. So I'm going to share some things with you tonight. This is from my personal Bible study. When I study in the mornings, I've been studying through um, First and Second Chronicles, and I got to this place, and I kind of camped here for a while, and God showed me some things. And so I want us to look at some things. So if you've got your handout, we'll kind of go quickly through this handout, but I want to simply point out some things from the then and then make an application for the now, Okay. Now, I'm under strict orders to try to be exciting tonight because Jill got up at 4 o'clock this morning and she said, if I fall asleep, it's your fault, okay? So if I all of a sudden do a cartwheel, it is okay, all right? I'm just trying to keep you awake, all right? But I want you to, I, I want you to see these things because, guys, there is a, a, a parallel to something I believe is happening in our day. I believe is happening in our day. The first thing that I want you to see is that we're talking about a return to the house of worship, a return to the house of worship. We live in a culture right now that, that thinks that church itself is insignificant or unimportant. And I want us to take a look at that Hezekiah's response in this thought process, okay? And so the first thing that I want you to see in this return to the house of worship is Hezekiah's first, first action, okay? Hezekiah's first action. So the first thing I want you to write down is the effort to restore worship. The effort to restore worship. And notice Hezekiah became king at 25 years old. This guy is a little older than a, a college graduate, okay? He's a little older than a college graduate, and he sees that the temple, that there's some things wrong with the temple. Now, the first thing that he sees, I want you to notice, is what he did to his effort to restore worship is the first thing he did was what? To open the doors of the house of God. That comes out of verse 3. In his first year, the first thing he did, 
He didn't do anything. The first thing that he did, not the second, not the third, not the fifth. The first thing that he did was recognize that the temple, there was, a, there was something going wrong in the temple. And that fact was that the temple doors were closed. The temple doors were closed. You know what that means? It means that there were not people coming in to the house of God to worship. There were no sacrifices being offered. There was no candelabra that was lit that was signifying the lamp and the light of God. There was no prayers being offered in the house of God. The doors were closed and guys even broken, which meant that when he repaired them, that the hinges made it to where they would not open and close easily. It talks about a condition of misuse or unuse of the house of God. The people in that time saw that place as unimportant and not worth going to. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar to you? That is the condition. And I'm not talking about the world. Listen, I honestly think sometimes the world is waiting for us to get excited about the church. Then they'll come in and wonder what's going on. You see, the problem, if you'll notice, he was not talking about these outside people. He was, the first people he pulled in was the Levites who were supposed to be taking care of that place. That's the first people that he addressed. And guys, that's the problem, I think, in our culture is that church, people who are supposed to think church is important don't think church is important. Thus, why do we have this amount of people on a Wednesday night instead of the exact same amount that we do on a Sunday morning? Hello, getting a little real. Hello. Isn't that the truth? That's why I can't be bothered. I can't. What was the problem was the doors were closed. And the first thing that he did, the first thing he did to try to institute revival, the first thing he did to try to bring life back to to Judah, to bring, here's the word, bring God's blessing back unto Judah was to open the doors of the temple. Symbolic, to come on in. Now, that's kind of an issue, isn't it? Because so many places aren't all like that, are they? They're not exactly inviting. But the the invitation's there to open the doors of the house of God. And then secondly, he receives this challenge. He gives this challenge to the Levites. If you'll look in verse 4, it says, Then he brought in the priest and the Levites. Now, you may not be familiar, but the only people that are allowed to do the, the functioning of the temple itself are priests and Levites. Priest being of the descendants of Aaron, okay, Levites being, of course, Levites, right? So, I mean, which descendants of Levi, okay? But, I mean, they are, these are the only two people set aside for that job. Nobody else is supposed to do that. And guess what? They're not in the temple either. So, the first thing he does is calls them in. He gathers them together and he says these words, hear me, Levites, and preaches a sermon. Sanctify, notice, sanctify yourselves. He tells them, listen, and sanctifying means there's a process that they had to go through to be able to do the work of the temple. Now it's in the Old Testament. You'll see it in both the Levitical law and you'll see it repeated again in Deuteronomy. But it was saying that these are the jobs you're supposed to do, but you need to be sanctified for that, which means washed and cleansed to be able to do those things. And he says, hey, sanctify yourselves. But then he says also to sanctify the sanctuary, okay? Now sanctify yourself and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers. And notice this, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Guys, the church had been so unused, the temple had been unused, the door had been closed, and it just became a place to collect junk. 
Things had been thrown in there, even to the holy place. Guys, the holy place, a place that many people weren't even supposed to enter, not necessarily the holy of holies, but the holy place, this outside place, became kind of gathering place for junk. And he said, take the junk out of this temple. Now, guys, the symbolism simple is that the problem we have right now, even in the church, is that we're bringing in too much junk inside the church. Too much junk. We've, we've made things too complicated. We've made things, and, and that's the issue. Listen, when you argue about music, you know what you brought in a church? Junk. You brought in junk. When you're sitting there and you're bad-mouthing this, and when you can't, and guys, when we have things like, uh, when we're having gossip and all that kind of dissension that comes in, what we brought in, we brought junk into the house of God. And the call is to say, get the junk out. Get it out. He said, get it out of the temple. He said, clean it out. But did you notice, who did he start with? He said, he started with them. He said, cleanse yourselves. Isn't that what we always say about revival? If we really want to experience revival, you draw a circle around yourself and say, I'm going to get, when everybody in this circle is right with God, then we're going to begin to experience revival. We all say that, but it's interesting how much that we have our own hangups and our own things when the whole time he's calling for us to get the junk out of the temple. We need to get the junk out of the house of God. To so the effort that he goes to restore worship. Then number two, number two is the evidence of lost worship. How we know that worship is lacking? How we know that worship is lacking? It says, for our fathers have trespassed, in verse six, and done evil in the eyes of the Lord God. Notice it, done evil. Now what is it that he talked about and how they've done evil? They have forsaken him. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also have shut up the doors. He said they've put out the lamps. They've not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. What, what was the evidence that he was giving of the fact that worship was lost? I, I believe we can make parallels here but if you look at what he said about the temple is that first they forsook the house of God that means they just didn't come anymore it wasn't important to be there it wasn't important to sacrifice it wasn't important to pray it wasn't important to do any that the temple became abandoned guys this describes so many places called churches today Churches on Wednesday night, right now, there are churches on Wednesday night that will have five or six people trying to keep those doors open in that church. Not because those people even don't have a desire to see God do something, because other people just don't see it's a priority to be in the house of God. It's not a big deal. They've forsaken God's house. Hezekiah recognized that this temple, now listen, I understand the church is not the temple, Okay? Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I understand that. The church is not the temple. But the Bible does say when it speaks about the church that this is a gift that God has given for us to be, guys, we are to be the hands and feet of Christ. And God did give a gift of the local church. And what is being symbolized here is that, guys, the gathering place for people to worship is being neglected. The only gathering place for them to worship then was the temple. That was it. There was no other place. So the symbolism of the gathering place of worshiping being forsaken. People don't come anymore. It's not important. Here's the key. It's not 
a priority. And so the temple became abandoned, full of dust. Doors got closed and nobody ever attended. Came full of junk and garbage. And all of a sudden when he finds it, he says, man, this is evidence of lost worship. We've forsaken the house of God. Shows that they've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord. The Bible says that in this case, they've trespassed. They've done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Guys, this is, this is something that I don't think Christians even take, take seriously. That God thinks it's important that you actually be in the house of God. People, and you're like, Brian Nathan, why are you preaching this on a Wednesday night? I don't know. God told me to, so I am. Maybe it's so you can go tell somebody who attends Sunday morning only about it. I don't know. Maybe they're watching on Facebook Live. The reality is that the evidence of lost worship is not only to forsake the house of God, but number two, to no longer sacrifice or make offerings. He said that, listen, none of these things are happening. He said there's no burnt offerings happening anymore. There's no incense being burnt. Now let me give you some just application here in no longer sacrificing or making offerings. Here's the issue that I have. It bothers me that people will sacrifice their mornings to go shoot a deer. They'll sacrifice their evenings to go watch somebody throw around a leather ball. And they'll scream and holler and they'll sit out there in the freezing cold and it may be raining and we cheer and then we get some sort of, <clears throat> oh, I can't attend church. You know what that is? A lack of sacrifice. You don't have to like it, it's the truth. I'm so tired of Christian people saying they love Jesus and following everything else in the world other than Jesus. They can't be bothered. They can't give up their time. They don't have any time to offer anything to God. This is, a, this is an afterthought. This is an app that you get on your phone that's convenient to tap every once in a while. Nobody sacrifices. Listen, is attending church a sacrifice? Is it is? Maybe it is. Then you should sacrifice. You should sacrifice the time. Why? Because he's worthy of the sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice to try to get your children up in the morning? Listen, I had two kids. One of them was Jonathan. You know, the only good thing about him is he's hyperactive. He's like his daddy. He's hyperactive. Once you got him up, you could keep him up, okay? You just couldn't get him down. That was the issue. He's in it. Guys, I, getting our kids and getting them to church, and I remember wrangling our kids. When I, I was pastoring for a time, and, and that we, we had to have people help us with Jonathan because we're going to get him up, and he's going to church. And Jonathan liked church. Jonathan's a dancer. Now, he don't dance now, but, but when he was a kid, he danced. You know, he, he'd like just get around and stuff. I mean, I'll never forget one time we're singing, Oh, precious is the flow that makes us. And we had a dog named Precious. And in the middle of service, he stood up and said, Hey, Daddy, they're singing about my dog. <laughs> he had more life than some of the other people, so I was okay with that. Is it a sacrifice to try to get them all together and get them here? Yes, it is. Is it a sacrifice worth it? Yes. Is it a sacrifice to tell your kids they can't go do something because you have something at church? Yes. But is it worth it? Yes. The issue of the house of God here is they were sacrificing to do everything else except be in God's house. Is that not the description of our culture today? Church people can't be bothered with coming to church. I'm going to just say something that needs to be said here. If your faith can't bring you to church, I wouldn't trust you to get, I trust it to get you to heaven. It's just the honest of God's truth. 
If you have no passion, no desire to be in God's house, you need to read the Bible because that's one of the first things 1 John tells you is evidence that you belong to him in the first place. A passion and a desire to be with God's people. It's unexplainable. He just puts it in you. Just you get saved and boom, you want to be with God's people. When you're not there, you know that you should be. You desire to be there. The issue, man, the evidence of this lost worship is the house of God was empty, forsaken, full of dust, never used, and people no longer sacrifice. They don't come to the house of God. They don't sacrifice to be there. They can't be bothered. There's no offerings. I think that's a description of people today who come into church thinking that church is supposed to be about what it can offer them. And it's exactly backwards about what God says. God says that you're supposed to come to church. God, how can I serve? How, what, do I, what can I offer you? I'm offering right now, God, I'm offering my time, I'm offering my life. The first thing you should do when you walk into church, God, I offer you my worship. I don't, I don't care if that song's not my favorite song. I don't care what style that song is. God, I offer you my worship. Why? Because you are worthy of the worship. God, I don't care if the preacher gets up and he sounds like the man from the clear eyes and he's all just like, and the Lord said that. I don't care if he's boring. You've been in some of them, okay? I don't care if he's boring. You offer, you say, God, I offer you this time because you're worthy. You see what's happening here? And Hezekiah recognized that the, this moral decline of the nation happened because God's house was forsaken. Can we see a little parallel there? Man, we, we got people that they, they don't know what's up and down. They, 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 don't know, they don't know anything. I mean, guys, people don't know what's right and wrong. And they wonder why. They never expose themselves to God's word. They're never, they're, they can't be bothered. Because everything else is more important. The house is forsaken. Evidence of lost worship. The third thing you see is the effects of lost worship. It's Roman numeral number three. The effects of lost worship. There are two things that are pointed out in particular here that I'm going to take just a little bit of time to discuss. So therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. And he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, meaning mocking, as you see with your own eyes. He showed that first that this state, this nation of Judah and Jerusalem were number one in a constant state of turmoil. If you'll read the Corinthians and even some of the kings, it's constant state of turmoil. Somebody's coming and invading, they're fighting off the invaders, then they fight off the invaders and then Israel and Judah go at it, their own brothers. Go at battle with each other, trying to take the other kingdom and convince the other one. Then there's worship wars going between the two of them. They begin to they set up a place of worship in, in a different place because they're like afraid if people go to Jerusalem, they're going to be turned to, to the nation of Judah. And so they set up their own worship. It is turmoil, turmoil, turmoil. Everywhere you look, constant turmoil. God gave them over to constant turmoil. But not only that, he had given them over to, number two, a deep feeling of emptiness. A deep feeling of emptiness, that word desolation. 
is talking about a, 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 an emptiness inside that there's just constant emptiness. No matter what you do, nothing fulfills it. You can have all the success in the world and yet you're never satisfied. Man, it, it, this, is, this is typical of just God saying, okay, I'm gonna, you think this is important, I'm going to let you have it. It's interesting to me what everybody chases, what everybody thinks is important. And then at the end, how empty that thing is. I watch people chase fame. You can watch, guys, we see people chase fame. We see them chase fortune. They're, they're worried about all kinds of things. And they can get what they think that they want. And when they get it, it's just, it's empty. And then they're upset and they just find out it's a never ending cycle. They got to have something else. Kind of like us in cars or whatever. You think you got to have a new car. Man, I need a new car, a new car. All of a sudden that car, you get that new car and you have that new car and you love that new car. You don't let the kids eat in that new car. And then what happens in about a year and a half? You start letting your guard down, don't you? Somebody spills something. You're like, oh. And then about five years later, what happens? That car's no longer new. And you start saying, hmm, I wish I had a new car. Don't look at me spiritual because we're all like that. Why? Because everything in this earth deteriorates like that. It is never, never satisfies. New stuff. I mean, you can have everything. It's never satisfies. There is just a deep emptiness, a deep feeling of emptiness. And guys, that's what God had given them over to. They chased after all this stuff. They forsook the house of God. They said that God, worship of God was not important. And they chased every other dream that they can possibly chase. And all they experienced, all that Judah experienced in this chasing the dreams they had was turmoil and emptiness. That's it. And that's, that sounds a lot like today. Our culture today chasing all kinds of things and all that ends up doing is becoming empty. It's empty and then constantly full of turmoil. I feel for this generation right here because listen, I'm just talking about, I'm not trying to get political for a second, but I've never seen people be so ugly about politics in my life. They've never seen what it's like to not have turmoil in politics. Do you know that? They've never seen what that looks like. They think that's normal. They've never seen a Democrat and a Republican be able to be kind to each other, especially on Facebook. Never seen it. They, they come that now where they're trying to quote, they'll quote things that are trying to uh, help people that are supposedly adults understand how to act. They'll say, hey, listen, doesn't matter who you vote for, I'll still be able to be friends with you tomorrow because I'm an adult. And you know who I saw posted on Facebook? 20-year-olds and under. Is it they've never seen life without turmoil. You know why? Because their entire life, people have been forsaking the house of God. Their own parents have told them that sports are more important than getting into the house of God. They've shown them their own parents have spent more time hunting than they have actually being in the word of God. Their whole generation has been taught that this place is not important. It's just an afterthought. Hezekiah saw it for what it was. Guys, as this falls, so does society. And it starts in us. It starts in us. The only person that can show a child how important church is is you, is the parent, the grandparent, the aunt, the uncle. 
We set that by example. Because it's like when growing up, who taught you to behave in church? It wasn't my Sunday school teacher. She had her hands full. I was an ADHD bounce off the wall. And that, you th- in my day, they used to give you Kool-Aid at the beginning. <laughs> that ain't smart. <laughs> and they'd give me red Kool-Aid. Red Kool-Aid does something with ADHD. Red Kool-Aid's like a no-no. They'd give me red Kool-Aid and cookies, okay? And then they'd like sit down and do a Bible lesson. Sure. <laughs> Wee! It was just like, ain't happening. And my Sunday school didn't teach me, my Sunday school teacher didn't teach me how to act in church. No, my, my parents did. When I, was, when I was little, I'd be in church, and listen, when I'd get kind of fussy, now listen, I don't remember the youngest years, you know, I mean, I, I, five, I don't think I remember five, but I know that by the time I was six or seven, I knew how to act in church, and I had like maybe the bruises on my head and my rear end to prove it. Man, you start acting, I never forget, man, I can, I can, you ever, can you ever, did you ever hear your mom's eyes gaze at you? You can hear it. Like, that's not even right. But I can hear, like, when I'm messing around, she'd be like, boom, and I'd hear this little, hee, I was like, Ooh. It's like something out of a horror movie, you know? And I'd turn around, she'd have the look, mm. you know, that crossways look, and I knew that, huh. Now, dad didn't look at you. Dad would clear his throat. Anybody's dad clear their throat? I'd be messing around over here. See, as, as teenagers, we used to sit, like, right here. Okay? I remember messing around right here, and my dad used to sit like over here. Okay? Now, we were in a smaller church, so you guys didn't exist. Okay? It was just right here. It was like over here, right? And then like, I'd be messing, and I wouldn't be doing much, you know, because I mean, you didn't have cell phones back then you know, and stuff to be looking at like that. I may be just having, the, you know, having a hymn book and then just doing this to the guy next to me, just be an idiot. I don't know. And like, I could hear, in the middle of Amazing Grace, I can hear, ha, ha, ha. Some of you got one of those, didn't you? And I knew right who that was. I heard my dad. <laughs> you know who taught me how to behave in church? My parents. And you know what helped? People who sat around me. You ever been flicked in the ear by a complete stranger? <laughs> Man, I have. <laughs> it's funny, because what do you say? You know? It's like I might be, I'll be just like, you know, goofing off or I mean, and sometimes, I mean, guys, it was. Sometimes I just had an attention deficit problem. And so I'd be talking too much. I know that shocks you. I'd be talking too much. And all of a sudden, someone just, boom, they'd flick me in the, either flick me in the head or flick me in the ear. Now, these are big targets, okay? So like, generally, it was the ear. And they'd, they'd flick me in the ear and I'd turn around and they'd just have, they'd have like the mom look. They'd be like, they wouldn't have to say anything. They wouldn't have to say anything. Nowadays, we're kind of afraid of that, afraid we'll get lawsuit if somebody flicks in the ear. And some of you probably would if somebody else flicked you. Somebody flicked your child in the ear because they're misbehaving. Some of you would throw a holy fit. That's part of your kid's problem. The biggest problem my wife ever deals with in school is not the children. It's the parents who think their children could do no wrong. Can I tell you, your children going to do wrong. And they need you to make sure they do right. They're not going to learn that on their own. They're not going to learn that by you being their best friend. The only way that we are able to teach that this place is important is when we live that example. We begin to speak that into the life of our children. Our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews. Guys, it's something that's taught and what had happened in the life of Judah is they lost respect for the house of God. It was no longer important. 
It wasn't important to be in there. Everything else was more important. And that evidence was that as God's house and being forsaken, then that began to affect the entire culture. The entire culture began to experience this, this falling away from God where we're in constant turmoil and we argue all the time about everything. Sounds like the culture we live in, that there's a deep emptiness that people are constantly... Guys, do you understand that right now one of the biggest, one of the biggest dangers to middle schoolers is suicide? They haven't lived long enough to live. And they're contemplating it because everything's empty. Everything's empty. It's the truth of our culture. Because people who claim to know don't even respect the house of God enough to be there. And it has this effect on the entire culture. So Hezekiah began to work hard. They don't have time to go into all of it, but Hezekiah first started with the priests and the Levites and began to consecrate them, and they began to sanctify themselves, and they started getting their lives right. And they started bringing in sacrifices once again into the temple. And then they did something that was really hard. He began to send what's called these runners. And so these communicators would go out from town to town to town and call people back to God. Sounds like evangelism, doesn't it? He would go and call people back to God. You know how people reacted? Different ways. So that's the last thing. Number four was the understanding of the return. The understanding of the return. I think we need to understand what we're going to experience in a return to the house of God being important. And I think you need to listen carefully. When I study in this, it, it stood out. If you'll read some chapters over, you, you see that they begin to experience some opposition in different things. The first thing came out of chapter 30, I think at the end of verse 10, it talks about that the runners went to different cities. And when they did, that the first thing that some people did was laugh and mock at them. Guys, when you start thinking that church is important, especially when you start to young people, when you start telling your friends, I'm going to church on Wednesday. I'm going to church Sunday morning. I'm going to church Sunday night. Well, weren't you just there Sunday morning? Yes, but we actually have church on Sunday night too, so I'm going to go back. One of the first things you're probably going to experience from the culture is laughing and mocking. That's exactly what they did. Listen, Hezekiah's calling people back. He's, he's trying to, he's rebuilding and he's making the, he's opening the doors of the temple. He's saying, everybody needs to come in. We need to come in. We need to make this important again. We need to worship God. Come join us. And people will laugh and mock. And that's the first thing you see. Some people will mock. That's number one. Some people will mock. There are people think I'm crazy about that. You, you, I've got people that are, that they're good church going people. That, that will argue with me about attendance to church. You don't have to attend church to say that you love God. Now, I know that in theory, that's true. I know that in theory, that's true. But in practice, it's not. In theory, it is. Listen, do I have to come into the house of God to love God? No. But if I love God, I will come into the house of God. Okay? That's the difference. It's like people say, well, you know, brother, you don't have to attend church to be saved. No. But if you're saved, you'll attend church. You'll want to be there. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? But why is it then that the culture of church people that we're in do not believe this is true? Listen, the reason they don't is either number one, they do not know Jesus. 
And some of us need to be more concerned about their souls than we are. What I'm telling you right now is an indication there are many people, and I'm not trying to bash people, I'm just trying to be biblical and honest. There are many people who will attend this church on a Sunday morning who do not know God. They have never been changed by his power. They have no desire to be in this place. It is some sort of chore that they do. And once they check it off, there's no need to come back. They punch the clock. I've done my duty to the Lord. Now I'm going to do what I want to do. Kentucky's playing. Ooh, that was quiet. (laughs) I knew I wouldn't get, amen, brother. I knew that wouldn't happen. should have said Tennessee's playing. Sorry, Scott. It's just right there. (laughs) Some people are mock. Because they say, you're crazy. That's, do you honestly believe that that makes a difference? Some people mock, make fun. But not only that, you notice that there were some people that began to come in. And then Hezekiah had a second problem. They began to come in and the people honestly had a desire and a passion to serve the Lord. You look a couple verses over and they began to come in, but because they came in, he had called them to come and celebrate the Passover. And now Old Testament says there's certain things you have to do to be sanctified, to be able to take the Passover. But there were some people so excited about God that they didn't do those things. And so they came in, there was all this excitement and Hezekiah was like, ah! They, forget, they, they don't know what they're doing. They're coming in and they're starting, to, they're starting to eat this Passover feast and they haven't done these things. And so Hezekiah falls on his knees and starts praying. The guy said, oh God, they're just stupid. I don't know what's going on. This is Nathan Rogers' paraphrase. They're eating stuff they shouldn't be eating and they haven't sanctified themselves. He said, hey God, will you just overlook it? Here's what I love. People think God's like this person up there and say, oh, you made a mistake. Zap. You know, like, We think he's like that because some of you act that way. You've messed up in your life and you think God's done with you because you've messed up in your life. You don't know God then. I love this picture. If you look, if you need to read it, it's in chapter 30. I believe it's in verse uh, 18 or 19. Uh, Let me find, yeah. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And verse 20 says, and the Lord listened to Hezekiah. He's like, hey God, these people don't know what they're doing. Would you just overlook it? And God's like, I can handle that. You're like, Nathan, what is this talking about? Can I tell you what will begin to happen is a generation gets turned on to church This is what has pushed many away. It's because too many churches are worried about what they look like when they come in. Too many churches worry about what they smell like when they come in. They worry about whether they know all the right things. Can I tell you the honest truth? If I didn't have parents tell me how to act in the house of God, I would be clueless how to act in the house of God. And some of God's people don't get that. People that come into the house, I have no clue how to act in the house of God. Somebody comes in carrying a soda and some of you right now are like, oh, he brought a soda into the sanctuary. <laughs> you know why I'm laughing? Because some of you have told me that. Teenager brought one in and it's like, oh, he brought a soda into the sanctuary. Guess what? He don't know no better. 
So that's when you come up, you put your arm around them, and you say, hey, can I have a drink of that soda? No, I'm just kidding. That's what you say. You can talk. To, I mean, listen, that, they don't know. And can I be honest? Can I just be real honest and make some of you mad? Does that even matter? Does it even matter? Man, Hezekiah saw people coming in doing all kinds of stuff they had no business doing. And he was worried to death. But he saw, God saw the heart of it. These people were passionately seeking God. Can I tell you what I think is going to happen in, in days to come? Because guys, I work with young people all the time, and I've never seen people have so much anxiety in their life. They have anxiety about having anxiety. It's everywhere. They they anxiety about phone. They have FOMO, which is fear of missing out. That's why they never commit to anything. They're afraid that if they commit to one thing, that they won't be able to do something else that's better, which is why none of you ever turn in a form for anything until like last minute when I'm begging you to turn in a form and then I'm calling your parents, hey, they need to turn in a form. Oh, we didn't know. Not like I've announced it for eight weeks. That was free. Okay. The fear of missing out. They have, I mean, guys, it, it is in what, what you foresee, and you can see just like what's happening in this culture, the emptiness, the brokenness of the world they live in will drive them to find something real. And in this world, there's only one thing that's real, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only thing that satisfies, the only thing that brings joy, the only thing that delivers from anxiety or anything else this world has. And they will look in all kinds of stuff and one of these days, they're gonna come looking in this place. They're gonna come to this place just searching, trying to see what is this all about? I've got a friend that comes here, they seem to like it. I wonder if this is the answer. And my prayer is that they see the passion and the desire in our hearts to be in this place that it is so strong, it is so overwhelming that they simply say, I want what they have. Because I don't have that. I don't know what, listen, there's, there's, there's nothing overly attractive about coming into a service on a Wednesday night. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things you can be doing. There's television shows that some of you would probably rather be watching. There's activities, there's things you might rather be working on. But when they see that there's a passion and a desire to come in and just offer God the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of presence, simply because no other reason but God, you're worthy of it. You're worthy of it. Guys, in light of all that he's done for us, and I, and I think that that's the point that I get to. At this time in their history, they had become biblically illiterate. And when they began to be taught, the Bible says the Levites began to teach them the things of God. And as the Levites started teaching them the things of God, they got more and more excited about what God had done. And even more so, more and more convicted about what they had done. And they began to seek the Lord. And in the nation of Judah, not in all the nations, but in the nation of Judah, a great revival took place. All because an emphasis was placed once again on the house of worship. The place where people come, where they gather, where they sing, where they sacrifice. And that place became important to them. 
And they began to gather. They began to worship. They began to sacrifice. And revival spread across the nation. And it didn't last long, if you know the history of them. It didn't last long, but it happened. And guys, I rest my hope in this. And I don't have one of those hopes that's like, oh God, I hope so. I rest my hope in this, that if God's people, it starts with us, if God's people will once again develop that kind of passion for the house of God, revival will take place once again. We won't be up here. Ronnie Jr. is not going to have to get up here and beg people to come to revival. Come on, guys, let's make a good showing. I'm almost insulted sometimes that he has to say that. It hurts my feeling as a, as a, as a he's, he's Batman, I'm Robin. It hurts my feeling as Robin. That was a good illustration, Batman and Robin. He has all this stuff. He, he's Batman, I'm, guys, I'm happy to be Robin, okay? And, and, I, and I, lo- I love what, but there's nothing that hurts me more for him to get up here, preach his guts out on a Sunday morning, looking at a full group of people, and have to beg them to come back on a Sunday night. I, I, I don't know how sometimes how he deal. How, I mean, guys, it, it hurts me to come in and to see it. Guys, when our, when our church sees that this is important, revival will happen. But it starts right here. God, I thank you. But I don't know who this is for. I know when you preach something like this on a Wednesday night, you're preaching to those that are faithful. Many of these have sacrificed to even be here tonight. They got off work and came straight here from work. They're still dressed in their work clothes. God, I thank you for their testimony of faithfulness to you. I thank you for what they communicate right now to this younger generation that's sitting to my right. That this is a valuable place to be. And God, I pray that 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 lesson will sink in. That this generation will begin to pass that on to the next. Now God, we'll even see that this is something that we discuss with other people in our church. God, wouldn't it be awesome just to see what would happen in one year if everybody was just faithful. If everyone was faithful just to come, just to be here to sacrifice whatever it took to be present in the house of worship, to offer you their worship, to offer the sacrifice of time, to offer that sacrifice of praise. God, what would happen? God, I pray that you would encourage these that are here. I know sometimes they're they're probably in the same boat that I'm in, discouraged that other people don't see this as important. God, I pray that you'd encourage them in their own lives, that they're setting an example before them. God, I pray that you might even lead them to people to be able to have conversation, even this week, about the importance of being in the house of God, and that, God, the small seeds that we plant even in others. But, God, maybe there's a person that's in this room, and, God, the truth is they just don't know you. They've tested religion. They've tested all the things it has to offer. And they just keep finding it empty. They've tried other things in this world and it just keeps coming up empty. They're never satisfied, always looking for something else. 
God, I pray that right now through the power of your spirit that you'd open their spiritual eyes to realize that all they're looking for can be found in you. There's no other place, no other person. But God, you, you love them enough to die on a cross for their sin, to make a way for them to have a relationship with you. And there's nothing you want more in this world for them to come to know you in a real way. And I pray that tonight would be the night that they give their heart to you. That they don't play a religious game. They recognize what they're missing is you. So God, I thank you for these that are here tonight, for those that have been faithful. And I pray that you'd help us to continue to set that example, no matter what this world throws at us or how it mocks, that God will always consider this place a place that's important to be in. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Just want to invite you to stand together. I began studying this week. Of course, this was in my personal Bible study. I knew that on a Wednesday night, this would almost seem awkward. Because you're here. You're here. But I want you to not get discouraged because many of you know someone who's not here. It just starts with us. You know, it's easy for us to get discouraged as the more that our culture for the fulfillment, the emptiness that's in your life just to be full and to know that it's full. You can have that tonight. You can. I'll be standing down here at the front if, if you'd like to talk about that. And I know you're like, man, you're Nathan, you want me to come down here and front all these people? Well, if that's really intimidating, just grab the person next to you and say, hey, would you... I'm not... I, I don't know that I have Christ in my life. Would you talk to me about that? somebody will come to you and somebody will begin to talk to you or that person will take you out to the back you don't have to come right down here to the front I just don't want you to leave without having that, it makes all the difference because what I'm going to challenge you to do is because I know I'm talking to the faithful and I'm going to ask you to start praying for somebody that you know should be here right now you know they should be here they maybe gave you a lame excuse or they didn't give excuse at all. They just don't come. And I'm asking you to start picking up this 
passion to be praying for that person that God would lay in their heart a desire to be in the house of God because I believe it will make that much of a difference so as they just begin to lead us in something softly if God's speaking to you I just want to encourage you to come now listen you don't have to come to this altar to pray for somebody that you know if you want to do that that's fine but my encouragement to you is just to begin praying that God would stir a revival in people to recognize, to open the doors, to get back into the house of God. Father, I thank you for tonight and for your word. I know it hasn't fallen on deaf ears, and I know that it will never return void. Your word went out, and it did what it was supposed to do. And I pray that we'll do as you lead us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If God's speaking to you, you come. Don't wait for somebody else. If God's speaking to you, if you don't know Christ, I'd love to talk to you. There's many people in this room who'd love to talk to you. But if God's speaking to you, I want you to come. Do me a favor tonight, church. If some people come down, make sure nobody prays alone. Just find somebody to pray with, okay? Just let them know you love them. Carry that burden. speaking to you. You come.
God's speaking and you come. just to continue to pray I do thank you for being here tonight your testimony to the church your testimony your own faithfulness just wouldn't it be awesome wouldn't it be awesome we saw the same people fill in this place tonight I feel it on Sunday mornings that's my prayer thank you for being here tonight uh, I ask to just continue to remember one another in prayer uh, every one of us carry burdens encourage you to remember the person that you thought of and keep praying for them. Maybe even reach out to them. Guys, I encourage you, if you know it's a man, I encourage you to challenge men. They need to be spiritual leaders of their home. Uh, the Bible said, you know, if you look at biblically, if a man begins to follow the Lord, his whole family begins to follow suit. So I just encourage you in that. Do you have something you need to share? What well, uh, to the counselors, uh, counselors who are going on our fall trip, we're going to have just a super short uh, meeting right up here in the front, just to kind of discuss as far as like our traveling stuff and kind of how we're how we're going to tackle all that. Okay, so we're going to have that right after right after service right here in the front. All right. Yeah, heard a good word tonight. Good word. Thank you, Brother Nathan. Uh, before you leave, Brother Nathan, I need the last two blanks, please. It will be messy. It will be messy. For those of you who have been hanging for those last two blanks. Uh there will be a meal for the Ringstaff family on Saturday, so if you can help with that, uh, give the office a call tomorrow, and so we can be making plans for that um, funeral at 10. Uh, we're going to Livingston County somewhere, uh, so they're probably looking at, what, 1 o'clock, 1.30, something like that probably, but so have that in radar. And... Uh, Freddie Jackson said, uh, working on doing some flag repair work type stuff for setting out our flags for Veterans Day and going to be replacing some that are kind of not looking so good. And so they're going to start working on that 9 o'clock Friday. <clears throat> and uh, so just meet meet here in the foyer, 9 o'clock Friday, if you could possibly come. And it don't, you know, it don't take a you know, you don't have to be a seamstress or a high skill level to do that, I don't think. Just be willing to come and work. And uh, so that'll be at 9 o'clock on Friday. Brother Nathan, let's remember one another as we pray. Encourage one another. Get an opportunity. Uh, somebody comes across your mind, shoot them a text, say, hey, Lord, put you on my mind. I'm praying for you right now. And uh, you, don't, you don't have to know every detail of their life. 
Uh, just when God does that, uh, you follow, follow through with it and uh, just see what a blessing that that will be to one another. Let's join hands together tonight as we are dismissed.